you're listening to Sermon Audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. Check out our other media, or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. Good morning, Redeemer. It's good to be with you again. I know that my wife and I have not met many of you. It's been two years, and I know a lot has changed at Redeemer in the last two years. Especially now, this is a very strange time, but we're looking forward, hopefully, to being with you all face-to-face and meeting some of you in person. And hopefully, we'll have a time when time allows to share more about Japan and what God's doing there. But I did just want to say thank you. Redeemer has been a terrific sending church, and our first two years in Japan were difficult as we labored to learn the language and begin church planting efforts, but they were good. And the whole time that we were there, we felt love and support, not only from Redeemer as a whole, but from individuals in the body that support us through prayer and encouragement and partnering with us. So we just really want to say a big thank you for the support and the love that we received from Redeemer in our first two years in Japan. And we're going to begin our series today once again in the book of Hebrews, and we begin in Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 7 today. And Hebrews 11 is all about faith, which is a very fitting topic for the time period in which we find ourselves living today. And there's a really unique thing that we see in this passage, and really it involves the present, the future, and the past. And what we see in our passage today basically is Christians are called to look to people of faith in the past, people that have exercised their faith in God. And looking to the past gives us strength in the present and hope and faith for the future. So there's this past, present, and future aspect that the writer of the Hebrews is giving to us today. And what do I actually mean by this past, present, future thing? Well, let me give you an example of the faith and the strength that we can gain in our lives today by looking at saints of old and the way that they walked with God and exercised their faith in him. Some of you have probably heard of a man named Brother Andrew. Uh, He was a man who had a burden in the 1950s to reach out into the Soviet Union and to take Bibles into these countries that were part of this large block that really wanted nothing to do with God. And so he wrote a book called God's Smuggler, and it details all of these stories that he had. He was a Dutchman, so he's coming out of Holland, and he's going through the Soviet Union smuggling Bibles and meeting with underground churches and joining together with believers to encourage them and to share the gospel. And as he's traveling through, he, of course, has all of these challenges and all of these roadblocks. And one of them was him trying to get into the country of Bulgaria. At that time, it was one of the most difficult places to get into and one of the most dangerous places. And he had a real burden to get there and to take Bibles there and to minister to the underground church. And in order to get there, he wanted to drive through the former country of Yugoslavia. But the problem was people in Yugoslavia, the police there, did not want him in the country. And so the first time he tries to go in there, They catch him, they realize what he's doing, they put this big red stamp on his passport and they expel him from the country and they tell him not to come back. But he's determined to get into Bulgaria and so he knows he has to get through Yugoslavia. And so basically he goes to lots of other countries in the area surrounding Yugoslavia and he gets stamps on his passport in so many places that they have to give him a new passport. So now the red stamp that they gave him in Yugoslavia is gone and he tries to go back in again. And he knows he's only going to have a few days before they realize what has happened and they catch up to him. He just has to get through, make the border crossing, and get into Bulgaria. 
He's three days in to Yugoslavia. They find him. They grab him from his hotel room in the middle of the night. They kick him out of the country. This time they give him three red stamps on his passport. And he tells them, I'm only 50 miles from the Bulgarian border. That's where I'm trying to get to. Just let me go out that way and I'll be gone. They tell him, no, you have to go back the way that you came. So he has to backtrack and leave the country at the same border that he came in. And so he loses all of his progress toward his goal. So this time he has to go in a very roundabout way through the country of Greece. And he's got to take a ferry with his boat on it to get into Greece, drive and try to get into Bulgaria that way. During this time, his wife is at home pregnant. He's becoming very depressed with all these roadblocks. The roads are really bad, so as he drives, he has such pain in his back that he's doubled over. He can barely walk, and he's really just down. He's lost a lot of his faith and his courage, but he has to press on. Finally, he makes his way with this long, torturous journey through Greece. He gets to the border where he's going to cross into Bulgaria, and he finds out that that border is only used for ambassadors and for diplomats. So he's not allowed to use that. No normal citizen is. So now he has to backtrack, drive all the way back, and go through the country of Turkey. So this is now a weeks-long ordeal where he has setback after setback after setback. And really, he's depressed. He's racked with depression. He's trying to make his way back. And he says he's driving through the countryside in Greece, and he sees this blue sign. And of course, at the top, it's got the Greek letters, which he can't read. And then underneath that, in Roman letters, it says Philippi. And he stops his car and he says, is, is this the city of Philippi that we read about in the Bible, where the Philippians were at? And he's looking at the ancient ruins of the city and he realizes, yes, this is the city where Paul ministered. This is the place where Paul was put in prison with Silas and where God gave an earthquake to free them from prison. This is where Lydia was, one of the first converts in Europe. And so he's thinking about the way that God ministered to Paul's spirit in that very city. And he's looking at this place, and the modern city of Philippi is about two miles away. So he's just looking at the ruins of this ancient city. And his courage and his faith is being built as he thinks about the way that God touched Saul or Paul in that very place. And this is what he says in his book. He's in this field looking out at the ruins of this ancient city. And he says, here there was not a sound. Only Paul shouting over the centuries, Christian, where is your faith? Paul had been in prison in this place, just as I was in prison too. A prison of pain and discouragement. Paul had Silas had been doing the same thing I was doing, preaching the gospel where it was not allowed. God performed a miracle to get his men out of prison then, And in that instant, I knew that he was even now performing another one to get me out of my prison. The bonds of depression that had wrapped themselves around me snapped as the chains on Paul's wrists had. The spirit of heaviness heaviness lifted, and with joy, I ran back to my car. And from there, he goes on, and he eventually makes it into Bulgaria. But you see what he did there. He looked back. He hears a voice from the ancient past of people who had followed God and seen God's work in their lives. And Paul is, in effect, shouting to him, Christian, where is your faith? And that faith bolsters him in the moment and gives him future courage. And that's what we see in the book of Hebrews today. These Christians are called to look back 
and then to move forward in this faithfulness. So Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 7. Before I read it, especially since it's been a while since we've been in Hebrews, I want to backtrack a little bit into chapter 10. Obviously, it's connected, and chapter 10 moves right into chapter 11. At the end of 10, the writer of the Hebrews is encouraging his recipients to have a strong and enduring faith in God, even in the face of trials and persecution. And then he quotes from the Old Testament book of Habakkuk. And this, this particular quotation is talking about the fact that the Lord will return, and when he returns, there will be two different types of people. This is what it says, chapter 10, verse 37. Yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. So two different groups of people, the righteous who live by faith, and then the ones who shrink back, whose soul God has no pleasure in. So those of faith and those without faith. And then in verse 39, he says, But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So he's saying, Christian brothers and sisters, we are not of that group that pulls away from God. We are not of that group whose souls shrink and they lose their faith. We are of that second group. We have faith in God and our souls are preserved. And then when you get into chapter 11, verse 1, it's almost as if you can see the wheels in his mind turning And he's almost saying, now about faith, let's talk about this faith for a moment that characterizes you. So in Hebrews 11, chapter chapter 11, verse 1, this is how it starts. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. So now here's a little treatise on the subject of faith. So I want to read the first seven verses for us, but real quick, just a summary. The writer describes faith, he defines faith, and then he gives examples of it which I'm very thankful for because the way that my mind works, just a definition is sometimes not enough. I need examples to make it real. So he defines it and then he gives examples of it. And all of these examples come from the book of Genesis. After he gives these examples of people who have walked with God and have been faithful, that fills up all of chapter 11. And what we see very clearly is that faith is not just an intellectual thing. It's not just taking an intellectual position of believing in God. But the way that faith expresses itself in the lives of these saints is through their actions and through the ways that they live their lives and the things that they do. So that's very key for us. Faith is not just an intellectual thing or an intellectual position that you take, but it's something that is so deep in your heart that it changes the way that you live your life and your life expresses the faith that you have. Let's read the passage and then walk through it together. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up 
so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Third example. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Let me pray. Father, this is a a strange time that we find ourselves in, but we know that you are not bound. We know that you are all-powerful. We know that King Jesus rules. We pray that even today as we meet, not together in person, but together through this digital platform, that your spirit would still be at work and that your spirit would accompany your powerful word. Please be honored in our world and in our Christian lives during this time. And please bless the body of Redeemer Church and the other churches here in Springfield that are sharing your word faithfully. In Jesus' name, amen. In verse 1, we see there are two parts of faith in the writer's definition. It's the assurance of things hoped for. It's the conviction of things not seen. In other words, faith is having a trust or an assurance of the future promises of God, the things that we have hoped for. This hope here is not a hope as in, I hope that tomorrow will be sunny, but I'm not sure. It's a confident assurance that the things that are ahead, the things that have been promised by God will happen. And the second part of this goes with it. Faith believes in things that it can't see. It's a conviction of things unseen. So simply put, it means having an assurance in your heart that the promises of God will come to pass. And it's also seeing with your heart and not just with your eyes. It's the eyes of faith that enable us to have a conviction to believe in things even when we cannot see them. And in verse 2 it says, by this faith, by this position of believing in God and believing his promises and trusting in things that can't be seen, the people of old received their commendation from God. A commendation is just a stamp of approval or a blessing. So the posture in times of old that got God's attention and that got God's approval was one in which people believed him, believed his promises, and believed in the things that he said. Then in verse 3, he goes all the way back to Genesis. And he starts in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, and he talks about the fact that the first article of faith that Christians have is we believe that the entire universe was formed by a creator. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. You'll notice as this passage goes on, if you watch for it, there is a theme of this concept of seen or visible or invisible. There's a focus on the seen things of this world and the fact that Christians and people of faith often act even when they cannot see with their eyes. So we understand that the things that we see in this world have their origins in a creator God. It's the first article that all Christians should hold to. 
Now, this is actually a very, very fundamental thing. Because if you really believe that this world owes its existence, and not just the world, but the word used here is universe, it owes its existence to the God that we see in the scriptures. This has implications for everything in your life. Because if he made it, that means by logical extension that he has control over it. He has power over it. And that means that in any situation you find yourself in, even in a worldwide pandemic, if you grasp this and clutch this and say, I believe by faith that this universe was made by a good God who is my father, then you can have strength, comfort, and courage in the face of the hardest circumstances. So the idea of the creator should bolster our faith and give us strength even today. And we need it now more than ever because if you watch the news every day, the news is basically atheistic. When you're watching news updates about COVID-19 and what's happening around the world, you get the facts about what's happening. But there's a lot of fear that goes with it. You don't turn on the nightly news and hear about what's happening and hear the anchor say, Tonight, the newest situation in New York City, what the good creator God might be doing through COVID. He is bringing beauty from ashes. You don't see that perspective of God at work, forming and moving in the world, doing what a creator does. You see fear and you see this idea that this whole thing is out of control, but it's not. And I don't want to belabor the point, but it's just such a stark contrast between people who say that they believe in a creator and people that don't because it totally shifts and affects your worldview. Stephen Jay Gould was an evolutionary biologist who has now passed away. And when he died, the New York Times called him one of the most influential evolutionary biologists of the 20th century. And he once said this, speaking about the human race, we are here because one odd group of fishes had a peculiar fin anatomy that could transform into legs for terrestrial creatures, because the earth never froze entirely during an ice age, because a small and tenuous species arising in Africa a quarter of a million years ago has managed so far to survive by hook and by crook. We may yearn for a higher answer, but none exists and he goes on in the quote to admit that he knows that's a very bleak and almost a terrifying conclusion to come to but in his world there is no creator god who has a plan or a purpose in fact there is no higher purpose to be found it's only up to us to create it for ourselves so you see a very stark difference between those who bow the knee to the god of genesis chapter 1 verse 1 and those who live in a world without him. And I believe that's why the writer of the Hebrews begins with the first article of faith as the creation of the universe. After creation, the rest of the list is made up of people and it goes in chronological order from the early parts of the book of Genesis. As I said earlier, I'm glad for the examples that we're going to see today because he's defined faith and it has two pieces and it's fairly easy to understand, but I need an example. I need a person who's living out that faith to help me bring it home into my heart. And so we're going to see that today. And all of chapter 11 has this list of these people. And these types of lists were actually common in ancient literature. 
religious and non-religious literature would often compile these different groups of people with different characteristics that they wanted their readers to emulate. And so what is being done here in this chapter is not uncommon for the day. And everyone that's given in this list obviously has the same characteristic of faith being something that defines them. So the first person we see after he mentions creation is Abel in verse 4. And you know the story of Cain and Abel, Adam and Eve's children. And of course, Abel is the unlucky person to have the title of being the first person ever murdered. But it says here in our passage that Abel and Cain, when they offered their sacrifices, Abel offered a more acceptable sacrifice than his brother Cain. And this passage tells us that it was through that sacrifice that he proves his righteousness and he shows his faith toward God. And if you remember, Cain, the older brother, was a uh, shepherd. Or Sorry, Cain was the farmer. He works the ground. He tills the field. And then Abel works with animals. He's a shepherd. And what happens is when they go to give sacrifices, Abel brings animals and Cain brings vegetables. And there's something about Abel's sacrifice that's more acceptable. And there have been a lot of debates about what exactly it was. Was it meat versus veggies and meat was more acceptable? Or was it the fact that Cain's heart was not right before God and Abel's was? So there's some debate about that, which is not worth getting hung up on. I think the most legitimate thing is probably to believe that it's the posture of the giver of the sacrifice rather than the sacrifice itself. And Abel, it says, was righteous before God. He had faith in God, and so his sacrifice was accepted. So he is given as the first person that we should emulate as a person of faith. And it says in this verse that even though he's dead, his voice still speaks to us today. He's still calling us to faithfulness. So just like the Apostle Paul's voice, so to speak, uh, spoke to Brother Andrew as he's looking out over the town of Philippi, Abel still speaks today, calling us to faithfulness in God and calling us to righteous lives and having this posture before God. In verse 5, Enoch is mentioned. Now this is one that I think especially for us today, being so far removed from this Jewish mindset, Enoch might seem like a very random choice. At the beginning it was for me too because you only see Enoch mentioned in this genealogy in Genesis chapter 5 and it's the genealogy of the children of Adam and Eve. And it basically just mentions him very little. It says that he was pleasing to God and then it says that he was gone and God took him. And that's all that we really see about him in the Bible until you get to Jude. And then in the book of Jude, it also mentions him briefly. That's all we have in the Old or New Testaments about this man. And so you might start to wonder, why was he chosen? But in material outside of the Old Testament, in ancient Jewish material, there was, in the written material, there was something about this person that was really dignified. If you read in some of these sources, he is often set up as this man who's almost a perfect example of faithfulness toward God. He's set up as a very righteous man, a man who was pleasing to God, and we know something happened, God took him. He doesn't die. He's almost described sometimes as a mystic who received these special revelations from God about the spiritual realm that most normal people don't know about. 
So he's a very mysterious man, but we do know from this passage that as Abel was described as being a righteous man in verse 4, Enoch is described as a man who was pleasing to God in verse 5, and a man who through faith walked with God and was then taken up. So you see in verse 4 and in verse 5 that there's something about the person, and then there's something about the response of God. So in verse 4, Abel offers the right kind of sacrifice, and it says in verse 4 that God accepted the sacrifice. In verse 5, it says that Enoch was a man who was pleasing to God and that God took him. So God has a response to the faithful actions of these righteous people, and these are the ones that we are called to emulate. I think it's very interesting in verse 6. It it follows after verse 5, of course, but it continues this theme of having pleased God that Enoch has. Verse 6, without faith, it is impossible to please God. The question for us today is, where are we being called to exercise our faith? As we look back to people that have gone before us, as we see the way that they lived their lives and showed their faith, in our day now, especially with this pandemic raging and fear being uh, available anywhere you look and worry and uncertainty about the future, where are we being called today in our individual lives to show faith in God? It says that without faith, it's impossible to please Him. Why is this? Because I believe that faith pleases him because it doesn't demand all of the answers. Faith takes its rightful position in our hearts when we say, I'm a creation. I live under the good rule of the creator. I don't demand to know all of the answers. I don't demand to know the the future. I don't demand to see with my eyes before I will believe, but I will find rest in my faith in him. And that's what true faith looks like. Not just an intellectual position, as we said, but something that changes the way that we live, changes our outlook in life, and changes our very hearts. So without faith, it's impossible to please God because a lack of faith is not allowing God to be God. And there's something that sort of sneaks its way in at the end of verse 6 that I think is absolutely fabulous if you allow the weight to touch you. End of verse 6 says this, Whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Now we're already back to verse 1. This is basically the definition of faith that we've already received. It believes in something that it cannot see, and it also believes that there's a promise that will one day be received. We believe in God we cannot see, and we believe his promise that when we seek him, We will be rewarded. But what is the reward? The reward for those who seek God is God himself. This is absolutely stunning if you think about it. This God has already been described as the creator. So here we have the maker of the entire universe who holds all things together by the word of his power, as we've already seen in Hebrews. So he's way up here. He's transcendent. He's the maker. He's completely sovereign. We're dependent on him for life, for breath, for everything. And in some religions, God is so far out there that you just can't get that close to him because he is so transcendent. But then you have him saying, 
Come to me. I will reward you with a deeper knowledge of me. I am the reward. So when you draw near to me, you seek me, I will reward you with more of me. This is absolutely amazing. And I don't think it touches us as much as it should. Because we live in a world where so many other things crowd out God. And we're not that surprised or shocked when we read this verse, but we should be because God has no obligation to let us in or to reveal himself to us or to welcome us to come. But he does. And so often we're happy with substitutes. But Hebrews says we can come boldly before him because of the finished work of Jesus. And we can seek him and come into intimate presence and intimate contact with God and he will reward that seeking. And so today, the question for us is, not only where are we being called to exercise our faith, but also, what are we seeking? Our hearts are always active, always seeking after something, always finding pleasure in something. Are we seeking the reward that comes when we look for the face of God? Verse 7 we move on to Noah. Noah, in my understanding, is probably the most um, likely candidate for modeling of faith in this passage. Abel, we sort of understand, but still the the idea of the sacrifice might not really hit home because it's a little unclear on what was going on there. And Enoch, we know so little about him. With Noah, we we understand, and the verse says it clearly, that he showed and exercised his faith by building the ark. And here is where this concept and this theme of seeing comes. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. He's told that an event is going to happen. He's never even seen it rain. He's told to build this humongous ark in the middle of dry ground. He's told that this worldwide flood is coming. And he has faith. And the Bible here says that by his faith, he condemns the world and he becomes an heir of righteousness that comes by faith. So again, there we see that the faith affects the way that you live your life. The faith affects the way that Noah did his life and his faith works its way out in the building of the ark. And this passage calls him an heir of righteousness by faith. So again, there's this sort of twofold connection here between righteousness and faith that you see with Abel, Enoch, and Noah. And that's what we are called to today. There are a few things that we should say about faith. Faith is essential for the right living of the Christian life. But it's important to understand what faith does not do. We don't want to be simplistic. We don't want to be people that say, if you have faith in God, nothing bad will happen to you. If you just have a little bit more faith, you'll be spared from adversity. If your loved one is sick with an illness or they have COVID-19, you just need a little bit more faith and you'll be healed. That is a damnable lie that you hear in some churches today. More faith, more faith, more faith. You'll be healed. You'll have money. You'll be successful. And if you have a problem in life, it's that your faith is lacking. But the Bible never says that. In fact, if you go to the end of chapter 11, something is amazing. 
This whole chapter, as I've said, lists people who had faith in God. But it doesn't always end well for people who express their faith in God. The end of this says this. Some were, suffer- some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. So the people that expressed faith in God, looking for better promises in the future and staking their entire lives on who this God was that they could not see, suffered for it. They lived in caves for it. They were stoned for it. And in that graphic example I just read, they were sawn in two for their faith in God. So we do not want to simplify it and boil it down and say, more faith equals more blessings. More faith equals less sickness. More faith equals more money. That's not what's being said here. In fact, the point of Hebrews is the opposite. The people who suffered did so because they were looking forward to a better reward and a better land and a better city, which is the city of God, that the world cannot equal and that the world cannot rival. In closing, I want to read the last two verses which go well with this. The first, or the second verse of Hebrews chapter 11, remember it says, By faith, the people of old received their commendation from God. So that's why we're looking back. We have all of these people in this hall of faith. So they received their approval from God. But I just read that some of them did not end, their lives did not end well because of their faith in God. The end of this chapter goes back to this idea of the people of old receiving their commendation through faith. And it says this, all of these, this is verse 39, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had provided something better for us that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. So Hebrews is saying, now the new covenant that God promised has come with the finished work of Jesus Christ. And now we have entered into God's Sabbath rest. So these people are looking ahead to a day when the Messiah would come. They're looking ahead to a day when something greater would be given. But they died without seeing it, even though they were commended through their faith and by their faith. But now, in these final days, we have received the promise and God provided something better through the life, death, and resurrection of King Jesus. So chapter 11 starts by pushing us back to people of faith who were commended for their faith. And then it ends by saying they had faith looking ahead to the promises but they did not receive the full expression of the promised blessings that we in the church age have received through the full covenant of Jesus Christ. So there are these bookends to this chapter. How can we summarize what we've read today? How can we bring it home? I think there are four simple things that we can say. Number one, let's have faith in the creator God. Believing in the God that made the world and believing in his absolute power can touch every part of our lives with an amazing freedom. Number two, let's believe in more 
than just simply the things that we can see with our eyes. Some people in the world demand to see before they will believe. And they only believe that what exists is the material world that they can sense with their five senses. Christians are called to something beyond that. So let's believe in more than just things that we can see with our eyes. Number three, look back to your ancestors in the faith and gain strength for today and faith for tomorrow. Look back to your ancestors in the faith and through their faith and through their example, gain strength for today and faith and courage for tomorrow. And number four, seek God and be rewarded with communion with him through Jesus Christ, our Lord.